You know, I, I gotta say, it's it's been a great experience being in a band, and it's definitely made made me who I am, good or bad. Welcome back to Label, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we're going to explore the world of a very unlikely, seemingly average punk band of 10th graders in Bremerton, Washington in the early 90s who was looking to play at high school parties and any local gig that they could get on. And you certainly know this type of band. You had them at your high school, too. But this one's different. This band, Magnified Plaid, soon to be MXPX, would make a couple of important connections and then be thrust from a sleepy small town to a globally successful musical act and part of the pop culture explosion of the 90s and all that still before graduation day. And all this would happen in tandem with Tooth & Nail Records going from a small, simple, successful indie hardcore record label on the West Coast right into the big leagues as a well-distributed powerhouse. So forces like money and fame and power now enter our story and will be with us the rest of the way. MXPX set a new precedent and may have changed all of our lives and paved the way for what was to come. So today's podcast is a little different. I recently got my hands on some source footage from the 2013 Tooth and Nail documentary, No New Kind of Story. I can't tell you how cool that is and a big deal for this podcast. I've got almost 10 terabytes of old VHS tapes and interviews and letters from fans and pictures. It's terrific. And I intend on using a lot of it in the future and releasing a ton of it to the supporting members of the labeled podcast. Anyway, I found an uncut interview with Brandon and Mike Herrera that was recorded in 2013. And I love it so much that I wanted to use it as a primary source for this episode. So remember, this is Mike in 2013. And most of what you hear from Brandon is from now. I talked to him last week about MXPX and that interview. All right, let's jump right in with Mike Carrera's interview from 2013. Here we go. I'm Mike Carrera from the band MXPX from Bremerton, Washington, in case you missed that one. The first show I ever played as a musician was Magnified Plaid, July 6th, uh, 1992. Magnified Plaid came out of um, Andy Houston, our first guitar player, was always wearing this plaid shirt. But it wasn't just a plaid shirt, it was like a t-shirt that you would get at like some just random department store that your mom bought you. I mean, total, his mom definitely bought him this shirt. <laughs> and uh, it was just very big plaid, like the lines were like this and they were kind of squiggly. So as if you were like looking at a magnifying glass and seeing really up close what the fibers kind of looked like in the shirt. So a friend of ours said that was his magnified plaid shirt because he wore it all the time, so it stuck. There was a few names we had before we settled on magnified plaid. One was Shady Hayes. I don't think I've ever told anybody this. I'm sure, I, why would I? It's horrible. Shady Hayes. There was a few other like ideas that were never actually like, okay, this is our band name, but like they were thrown around. There were some horrible ones. Something about weed eater, like weed, Eater. I don't know why. I was doing a lot of yard work back then. My parents had a huge yard. I was probably just sitting there going, okay, we need a band name. Weed Eater. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. So I guess once I kind of like made my own band, like I'm going to start a band. It's going to be my songs. I started writing songs. So I was writing songs for about a year and learning to play bass for about a year before MXPX was, played our first show. The original lineup for MXPX was Yuri Ruli on drums, Andy Husted on guitar, and myself on bass and singing. 
you know, our first show was what we considered to be when the band started, because we were only really together for about a week before that. A week of practice, and then our first show, which was at my house in the backyard, and all our friends and family came, people from youth group, that kind of thing. The very next week, we did another show. I think it was another party, backyard, and then we finally graduated to playing. It was a church that we went to, like the youth group room. So we played there, and it went really good. And then I think we actually planned a really big event. We put on a show at our church again, because I mean, where are you gonna go? We went to youth group as kids and there was no other really place to play. There wasn't a lot of all ages stuff back then. So we put out all these flyers, had friends from each high school put them out to all their friends. And we were an unknown band. I don't know why everybody came, but everybody came. Probably because that, just, that stuff back then didn't really happen. They didn't have shows, bands weren't putting on their own shows. Five years after that, after we were started, starting to get big, like act truly big, not just a fluke. I would have people that I barely even knew or didn't even know say, I was at that show. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's so weird. Like there was no real PA for the show. We borrowed guitar amps and put our microphones through it. So I'm sure it sounded just absolutely horrible. <laughs> after we were magnified plaid i mean this is the first year of being in a, in a band and kind of put, starting to do our own flyers yuri got tired of of writing out magnified plaid like on our demo tapes on our posters there would always be magnified plaid it's so long all right and for some reason i didn't want our demo tapes like the covers i didn't want them to be photocopied i don't i wanted each one to be drawn so we'd actually have a real drawing for every cassette cover and because of that, Yuri decided, okay, we gotta abbreviate this. MXPX, he made the X's real small. So everybody immediately latched onto that and just started calling us MXPX. We had two different sort of demo albums with a full album's worth of songs. And they weren't like four songs, it was like 12 songs, you know, 15 songs, that kind of thing. Um, the first one we had was recorded in a garage. We call it the Green Album because it was just a green, green, it was on green paper. And then we put out another one called Orange Station Wagons or something like that. That's actually what we, one of those we handed to Aaron Sprinkle. Well, what, what happened is, is we... This is Aaron Sprinkle, the guitar player in Poor Old Lou and eventual legendary producer of Tooth & Nail Records. Poor Old Lou played a show over on somewhere over kind of Port Orchard area or something. And Andy from MXPX was there, and he gave us a cassette tape. It was called Orange Station Wagon, and it had a drawing of an orange station wagon on it. And it was really kind of hard to listen to, but it, I could tell there was something there. And then we played another show like a few months later in Bremerton, and I don't remember exactly how long, but one of the bands canceled, and the MXPX guys were there, and they're like, can we play? Our gear's just down the road. We live in Bremerton. So I saw him play that night, and I flipped out. I gave Aaron uh, our tape, and he called and invited us to come play a party. So the very first show we ever played in Seattle was at a house party in the U District of Seattle. It's like a whole new world for us. The bands playing were Blenderhead, Don't Know, The Guilty. That's Damien Gerardo's old punk band. We 
uh, we got there, we're like, where do we load our gear? And there's like no room anywhere. It's just packed with people. And we ended up just setting up right there, right in between the kitchen and the living room. And everybody's just packed in there listening and crowded around. I can't remember the name of that place. It was like the Funk House, I think. All the bands were amazing, but they didn't make us feel like we were inferior. They actually just, they just kept inviting us back. Um, Aaron Sprinkle brought, not only invited us to come play these shows in Seattle, he also recorded us for free. in my church that I'm recording bands at. It was, I was just starting to record other bands. And uh, I'll record you guys for free, but I want to give it to my friend Brandon, who just started this label, Tooth & Nail. I want to give it to him first. So the word was, come and record these four songs, and I'm going to get this guy to put it out on Tooth & Nail Records. This guy, Brandon. Brandon had released uh, Blunderhead, or was about to, I think, right before us. And that was one of the bands we were constantly playing with. So he came up to this show in a basement in Fall City. Fall City was a place I'd never even heard of. And this guy, this kind of, I can't, his name was John, I think. He was in the hardcore scene. He had bands like Undertow playing out there. A lot of bigger bands that were kind of like outside our scene even, uh, just filling this place up weekend after weekend. And he wanted us to come out and play. And so we did, and Brandon showed up and, and was in the back of this hot, sweaty, room full of people, full of kids. I think at that point, Brandon wanted to sign us and decided, yeah, let's definitely do the full length. And that summer, we went into a vast. So we did four songs, I think. And then I sent it to Brandon. Aaron was starting to produce records. He was only a little kid. Here's Brandon Ebel, Tooth & Nail's founder. Like probably 17, 18, 19-ish. And yeah, he pitched me MXPX and said, hey, I'm doing this demo for these guys. And and for some reason I went up there and I don't know if it's because, oh, I went up there because Bill Power had started doing the merchandise. I went up there to check in on that. And and then, then in doing so, I went and hung out with Aaron Sprinkle and went to saw his little studio setup he had. And he started playing me some bands and one of them was MXPX. Right when I heard it, I'm like, wow, these guys are awesome. How old are they again? And he's like, they're only 16. So we went to Seattle and recorded with Aaron at this studio that he worked at. And it was the summertime, so this was after our sophomore year in high school was when we recorded Poconatcha. When I got to do Poconatcha, I was 19. I, th I think I'd just turned 20 when we started recording. And uh, I'd only worked out of this studio in my church that was actually really cool looking back on it, but it was limited compared to Avast. And I just sort of like said, yeah, I can do it, but I'd never used about half the stuff in there before. Those demos actually made it on the re-release of Let It Happen. And three of the songs were re-recorded for Poconatra. So that kind of got us started with the first time we ever heard about Tooth and & Nail. And I think once Brandon heard those four songs, and this is what I'm hearing from through Aaron Sprinkle, was, hey man, let's forget the seven inch, let's just do an album. In retrospect, he's told me that he had no idea how to record anything. But then again, I mean, we didn't know how to play. I just kind of figured it out as I went. And there's like 20 songs on that record or something like that. And we did the whole thing in like, I don't know, two weeks or something. And like, yeah, we I remember during Mix on that record, no joke, 
uh, I more than once would look at Mike and go, didn't we already mix this song? And he'd be like, no, but I'd be like, oh, sorry. <laughs> so at that time, Plank Eye and Wish Reading were taking off. And uh, Focus was really big in Southern California. They only sold about eight, eight, thousand, eight or 9,000 copies, but in Southern California, they sold almost all there, right? Okay. So they were huge there. And then Plank Eye was actually getting on some radio stations. So we were very excited. So with MXPX, you know, my goal for them was to try to get them to come to California to play shows because that's where my offices were. And I thought they could be huge there, huge in San Francisco and big in Seattle. So I remember I came back to California with this demo that Aaron made and I played it for Jason from Starflyer. And we we both listen to that and he goes man these songs are catchy like you just listen to Poconaccia this album one time we were driving around Southern California going somewhere doing something he goes and then like you then you hum it like immediately he goes there's just something about it there's just something about it even though it sounds like you know it's all out of key and like it's all garagey punk you know there's songs in there and they're good first met with Mike, he told me he had already written 72 songs. So it's like, oh, we could just put out a couple albums in a year and then they'd be out of their contract before they're 18 anyway. And so their parents had to co-sign it. And we all met at the Herrera's house and we they made a big campfire. And we all hung out and like talked around the campfire. And then I just said, hey, you know, we're going to do two records. I would like to at least. And you guys would need to co-sign that. And you could have a lawyer look at it. And then the way Mike, Mike already says he has 70 songs. So you could record a couple albums and be done before you're out of high school, right? <laughs> then because it's all two-inch tape, it's all analog, there's no pitch correction. If you don't play it well, if you don't sing it well, it's not going to sound good anyway. It really is exactly how we played it. And then it came out in around November of 1994. It was our senior year in high school, or we were just new seniors. It was the beginning of the school year. But John Nissen did the artwork and immediately, before the record was out, I got tattooed. So I definitely know for a fact I'm the first person to ever get the Poconetra Punk tattooed on me. So we put out Poconaccio, the sales are bonkers. I'm like, hey, you guys are going to fly down for this show. You're going to be the headliner at this church. At my church, I'm running a concert series called April Fest. This is Jason Carson. At the time, Jason was the drummer for a band called Saved, which would later change their name to the OC Superdones. Now, I had a conversation with Jason and streamed it live on Twitch a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. And so we ran concert series for like three years in a row, every Friday night of April, and we brought in all the good bands. So all the tooth and nail bands you know of, like we brought them in. And it was that time, I think it was in 95, we brought in MXPX for the first time in California. That was the first so we, time MXPX ever went to California. You specifically are the one that brought them there? Yeah, yeah. So it's spring of our senior year of high school. So it's 1995. We'd put out Pocanacha. Um, we'd been playing a lot of local shows, um, mostly Seattle area, Bremerton, of course, Kitsap County, down to Portland. And the shows were going really well. We got this show in Orange County, where Tooth & Nail's from. And so we had these concerts in our little youth room that kind of holds like 500 people. 
And each night there might have been, I don't know, 200, 300 people, which was pretty good turnout for, you know, kind of underground concerts and the Christian scene at that point. And we actually had to fly out for it. So we missed a, a day of school on Friday, fl flew down there. And I don't remember if it was just a show or if it was an event, but it was in the, the basement of this church. And we show up and there's just all this network of people, like twice as many people as, as in Seattle. I was trying to give them the heads up, that, like you guys are kind of big now, like you're blowing up in Southern California. And the only way I know they're blowing up, there's no sound scan, there's no radio, is that we just keep getting reorders for these CDs. Like, like Lighthouse Christian Bookstore, hey, we took 200 CDs, they sold out in a week. We'll take 500 more. We were getting reorders for the CDs like wildfire, like hotcakes. And I told the band, when you come down, this is going to be an eye opener for you because you're going to go into a room of a thousand people and they're all going to know your lyrics. You're big, like instantly. You're still in high school, but you're big and at least you're big in Orange County. And then boom, showtime, all the kids start flowing in. And I'm like, somebody here is really big, you know, some band that we're playing with that night. But then when we hit the stage, or actually I don't think there was a stage, it's a floor. Everybody knew all the words to poking at you. There's all these people that knew who we were. The place went, it was nuts, man. We had 900 people inside of this 500 person room. Definitely being the first time out, like far away from our, our region, uh, really blew us away. It really made us go, all right, this is crazy. All right, I want to take this ad break to remind you guys that the Labeled Podcast and Tooth and Nail is sponsoring a concert or a showcase, maybe, in Dallas, Texas, next Saturday night, February the 16th. That is May, Emory, the classic crime acoustic, and a new Tooth and Nail band called Empty Isles. It's going to be part of the Bad Christian Conference. The tickets are just $20 to see this show. It's at the door in Dallas. And we expect to see a lot of labeled fans, Tooth & Nail fans, May fans, Emory fans, all that kind of stuff out there together. It's a wonderful venue. I think you'll have a good time. If you're interested in that, you can go to emorymusic.com and find the tickets there. And if you're interested in, in the larger scale Bad Christian Conference that's going on that weekend, which the guys at May are going to be speaking at and some other people like that, that's badchristiancon.com. And also, as we always talk about here, Labeled is a member-supported podcast. Tooth & Nail partially funds it, but we count on the members as well. We try to do everything we can and give a bunch of bonus tape, a whole bunch of tape from this episode that, of Mike Carrera talking that's not in the episode is there. Join us at patreon.com slash labeled. So remember, I had just moved from Southern California, so that was my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I knew I had all the connections there with all the stores, all the networkers, all the concert promoters. So I knew I could blow them up there because that was the genre of music that was getting big. I felt confident about that. Then we did it sooner than I thought because I didn't think we could do it until they started touring. But we did it even when they were just in school. They weren't even touring. And the way that Mike thinks about it is, right, it's like we should come here every weekend and play in a you know play another basement show. Like that that was the way they were thinking, kind of. And so was I. Like basement shows, like indie. Yeah. <laughs> Our senior year of high school, we already had enough uh, material for a new album. Andy was practicing with us that winter for the new album, but our main goal was like, let's tour. We're gonna tour this summer. Cause we had tried to tour 
the summer before, and it fell through, and he didn't want to do it. He had to mow the lawn a lot or something. And he wouldn't even ask his parents, and, and that was kind of like really the main reason why we ended up kicking him out of the band was because he wouldn't ask his parents if he could tour. <laughs> it's so weird, like, back then. So we ended up getting Tom. He was a, a band guy, band friend. He slowly started learning guitar because we're like, man, I don't know if it's not working out with Andy. So he started learning our songs, and I saw that Tom was really into it. Like, he, he wanted to be in the band. So um, at the same time uh, we were practicing with Andy, the new album, Teenage Politics, Tom was also learning a lot of those new songs. So it was like, once we decided to kick out Andy, Tom was like right there, ready to go. I, you know, some would say it was maybe cold and callous, um, but for us it was, it was just our drive and like wanting to be prepared and not wanting to skip a beat. So he was pretty pissed. We had two shows booked that weekend and we thought for sure he wasn't gonna do any of them, but he showed up and said, I wanna play the last, you know, I want this to be my last show, I'm gonna play. And we're like, okay, yeah, that, that's cool. It makes sense. And so Andy played a show on Friday and then Tom played his first show in Portland on Saturday, back to back. Pretty weird, but that was Teenage Politics. We were playing all those songs and we ended up recording during spring break of our senior year, 1995. So then, but then they had to go back to high school and do all that stuff. And so then it's time to make the follow-up record to poking at you and they have to just do it on spring break. <laughs> so, and that got a little weird because Mike had all these songs he wanted to record and we really wanted to record as well because they weren't really touring much, playing weekend shows in basements or whatever. So we had to do Teenage Politics, but we had to do the whole album instead of 14 days, nine days. So instead of having 21 songs, Teenage Politics only had a Why'd you all had to do it in nine days? Because they were on spring break. They had to go back to school. <laughs> so we recorded Teenage Politics. Uh, we recorded it in nine days. Started on that weekend, went that whole week that we had off school, finished up the mixing that weekend, nine days. I don't know if the math exactly adds up. I just know it was nine days. No. We go back to high school just to finish up a little bit. I remember one of my teachers, you know, when we were doing our five-year plan in, in class, I said, you know, I'm gonna go on tour. I'm gonna be in this band. I'm gonna put out albums. She's told everybody else, this is an example of what not to do. So needless to say, I was ready to get out of high school and, and get there. Um, real quick about that. Now she tells people, dare to dream because this guy did it, you know, or whatever. So, um, so we graduated high school and the Tooth and Nail staff, Brandon and, and a bunch of other people came to our graduation. And they're all walking down with their caps and, the, and I sat there with their mom, Michelle, and we all went to their graduation. And to this day, I've never been to another Tooth and Nail artist high school graduation. <laughs> <laughs> Which was weird, but at the time it seemed completely normal, right? Uh, we had we had been going to high school, so we had sort of fallen behind on some of the stuff that a band would normally do after putting out a record with our first album, Poking At You. So graduate high school, one day off. The next day, actually, we didn't have we didn't even have a day off. So we graduated high school. The next day, we went over to Seattle and and filmed the video for uh, Wanted. The day after that, we leave for our first tour. Finally, we're going on tour, we're graduated. So we go down to California, Southern California. We end up in Long Beach and we meet up with Tim Mann from, uh, from Focused. <laughs> so we're staying in his apartment. We filmed the video for Punk Rock Show. Darren Doan directed it and he had all his guys out there. We ain't 
got no place to go Let's go to the punk rock show Darling, take me by the hand Gonna see a punk rock band There's no use in TV shows Radio, rodeo Wanna get into the crowd Wanna hit play real loud and then they went on a tour, and that was a little bit more of an eye-opener, right? Dallas was a big show, but they also played a couple of shows where there was like 50 people, because you're playing through the Midwest. But there, I think in Dallas, they had hundreds of people. And I believe they toured all the way out to Cornerstone and back. Once we started touring, we just kept touring and touring and touring, and we never stopped. I think that's why, part of why life in general was such a drastic improvement on the first two albums. It was because now we're a touring band. Now we're out there seeing a lot of other bands, seeing a lot of, uh, seeing a lot of the country, meeting a lot of new people. So culturally, musically, we're just growing as people. We're going to the punk The first two albums are doing huge. MXPX is truly starting to blow up. Now they're over 18 years old. I signed them for three more albums. But three albums to some artists is eight or nine years, 10 years. Three albums to my career is like two and a half years <laughs> of his life, right? Because he's so prolific, amazing songwriter. So I'm like, I'm going to spend the big money. So I go to Robert Lang's studio where the first Foo Fighters was recorded. It's in like in this house up in Shoreline like that looks over the, the water and everything. Lovely. And um, we're there spending a bunch of money to record there and Bob Moon is going to do the third album. We went in with Bob Moon and, and we recorded the, the Life in General album the first time and it was the same service as Teenage Politics. It was done quickly. Um, he did what we wanted, but we didn't know what we wanted. You know, we thought we knew what we wanted and our idea was like, let's make it sound like Jawbreaker. Really thick, really just huge. What we didn't realize is punk rock, when it's really fast music, it sounds kind of bad if it's too thick. Um, aside from that, just the performances, we, we weren't ready yet either. We needed, we still needed, even though the songs were better, we really needed somebody to mold us out of that lump of clay that we were. It didn't turn out that great. Performances weren't great. We needed the songs to be cut down and molded a little bit. We needed our performances, for one, to be we needed to be told, do it again, do it again, do it again. Like, you can't make a record this good in nine days. But they had just got done recording a side project called The Cooties with a guy named Steve Kravak in West Hollywood. And he had done some stuff for Epitaph Records and Lookout, and he was a punk rock producer. And once they had experienced that and had worked on this Cooties record, they were not vibing on Bob anymore. And and their energy they had together. So I'll never forget this. We go up on the top of Robert Lang's studio. He had this deck. It was in a basement below his house. And we look out over the water, you know, there in Seattle. And they go, we want to go and record the new Life in General album with Steve Kravak. And After they just got done recording. With well, they, we were like 80%. We were 80% into it. So I was like, well, I've already spent like 30 grand or whatever, renting out the studio and everything. They're like, and Mike was adamant. Like, I want to use Steve. And so I had to think about that because like I was eating 30 grand. But at the same time, I'd introduced them to Steve, and they had loved Steve, and I couldn't argue that the Cooties record sounded sonically better than Poking At Your Teenage Politics or the current album we were recording. And he had the wherewithal at the age of 18 to come to me, even though I'd spent 30 grand, and say, Brandon, we had a better experience with Steve. We love Bob, but we'll have a better chemistry with Steve, and this is an important record for our career. We just resigned with you, and I know that you're probably cringing that you were going to lose 30 grand or whatever, but... Let's do it again. So after meeting Steve Kravak, we were like, okay, this guy, this is what we need to make our record what we want it to be. You know, it started with a few songs and then it ended up, let's do the whole record. 
And uh, Brandon was like, oh, I don't know if we can do that. And I'd never had an artist do that. And I thought about it for a night or whatever. And then I, I did. I took his advice. And at that point in Tooth and Nail history, that was a great decision because the record they made for life in general put MXPX on a whole nother stratosphere. Welcome back to 120 Minutes. I'm Matt Pinfield talking with the guys in MXPX. And you built uh, quite a big co-following for touring over the last couple of years. You're going on the road, you're going to be on the road with no doubt doing at least five or six shows with them, right? Yeah, and a couple of shows. Are they requesting for that tour? That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah as well. that's awesome. And you know, Should be you cool. play with a lot of other bands. You play with Les and Jake too, right? You've done shows yeah. with Yeah, we've played with a lot of people. Everybody's been really cool and nice. So. We've just been out with Face to Face for like three weeks now. It's yeah. yeah, well, it's cool. Thanks for coming by, guys. Yeah, yeah no right. Appreciate it having you. You should check out this album from MXPX Life in general as well as some of the older stuff, like Teenage Politics, Poca Nacha. It's Nate, is it Nacha or Nacha? Poca Nacha. 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 I'm on the cover. Don't ask me. Right? Let's check out another video. Thanks again. Thanks. Cool. MXPX is legit. Like, people are coming to their shows and, like, they're fans, right? And they're not Christian bands, they're just bands, and, like, they like the band. Like, these guys can hang with anyone, anytime, anywhere, you know? And then the next two years, they were opening for Less Than Jake, No Doubt, Face to Face, Dinosaur Jr. You know, they could get on a show with anybody. I mean, like, anybody that would come to town would want them to open. They were they were considered a complete legitimate band. Now the yeah. Well, then, then we got them on MTV's 120 Minutes. MTV started playing their videos on 120 Minutes, like nonstop, the videos that Darren Doan did. I mean, and we I remember we had an actual MTV party at my condo in downtown Seattle, and I threw a party for them. And we all watched Matt Penfield interview them. The first time we saw, like, one of our videos on MTV, it was uh, obviously amazing. Same, same with, like, hearing yourself on the radio. That was huge. Getting to, you know, hang out with in New York. I mean, that was one of the coolest things. Getting to go to New York City and, and go and do interviews on this TV channel. It was, it was so different from, you know, where we started in Bremerton. Um, but of course, all these you know radio stations, Marco Collins here in Seattle, and The End 107.7 The End here in Seattle. Um, it was always cool to hear um, Lisa Warden down in LA at K Rock. Lisa Warden from K Rock, the number one alternative radio station in America, added the song. And I actually flew down and I did a big presentation with like a binder and like stats. And she sat there and started giggling. She goes, Brandon, you know you don't just walk in here with like a spreadsheet and get on K-Rock, right? She goes, you have to hire like an independent indie. This is kind of back in the days of payola. Back in those days, you would hire a guy who was a advisor and he would then pitch the band. And then the labels would pay that person money. I don't know how it works to this day, but... I was like, sure, I'll go hire whoever you want. Who do I need to hire? And so she tells me, and then she calls me and two days later, and she goes, we're adding the band.
everything kind of just hit at once and they were playing us on TV. Uh, Yuri, I know there was a famous time when we were we were talking to Matt Pinfield on 120 Minutes and Yuri's talking, the camera's on him. It's maybe a shot where you can see his knees and right before he answers the question, he scratches his nuts. <laughs> Is the we just look when we saw that later we're like oh my gosh I can't believe you did that it's the best and we obviously I still talk about it to this day so you know of course I'd like to say we learned a little bit of what not to do on television uh, but that's definitely one of them um, you know of course there's a backlash that came with like all that popularity we were a band that yes we grew up as Christians but didn't really you know we had some of our earlier songs definitely had um, uh, religious songs spiritual songs whatever you call it um, I grew up in youth group and I was in youth group when I was writing all those songs so it kind of just made sense once you know I started Graduated high school, wasn't going to youth group as much. Um, just got into the just more just like, I want to be more of an artist and, and do what I want to do. I want to be a rebellious punk rock teenager. Um, you know, the more people told me to do something, say, hey, you should do an altar call on stage, the, the less I wanted to do that, the less I wanted to be like some other bands that were doing it. Even if they were doing it for their reasons and the right reasons, I didn't want to, I, I always thought that if I do this, I'm doing it for the wrong reasons and uh, I, I don't think that's right. So I was actually not doing some things that a lot of the uh, Christian promoters or pastors at churches we would play um, were trying to get us to do. So we got like banned from some venues, uh, kicked out of places, gotten fights with, with some of the promoters because we weren't doing what they wanted us to do. When we were in Germany, I I actually swore on stage in Europe because I knew we were in Europe and nobody would care. Well, there was a recording of it and it got into the US and people were bummed about it. I'm like, sorry, you know, what, what can you do? I mean, I'm an adult, but uh, so yeah, there's been things like that over the years. And sort of the, um, the top of that was when we played Tom Fest and MTV2 was there filming. We were pretty big at the time. Uh, it was like, we're getting, just getting bigger and bigger. And you know, there's this huge fight on MTV2 between all these people that think, you know, that thought that MXPX was sellouts and weren't real Christians. And then the other side, a lot of it was like actual other tooth and nail artists, band guys. Um, I know uh, Mark Solomon was in there, Matt. Uh, Matt was in there from Blenderhead defending us because, you know, these are our friends. These are people that we knew. And that was a huge sort of like weird, awkward thing. And ever since then, it was just, you know, that's happened at Cornerstone as well, Cornerstone Festival, um, where you've kind of got like, everybody loves us. And then you've got a few people that think they know what the Christian scene should be and every band should conform to that. But it turns out that maybe we were right in the long run. I don't know. <laughs> it was crazy. Everything happened so fast. And, and we're talking about days before the, the internet was big, before cell phones. I mean, we, didn't, we had beepers. When we went on our first tour, we had a beeper. We had a notebook with directions or addresses, and we had to stop and use a payphone. So, you know, things were much different then. But we started touring with these bands, like Face to Face was one of the big, big bands, uh, Dancehall Crashers, No Doubt. The ska scene was really big back then, so a lot of punk bands and ska bands would tour together. And we toured with Real Big Fish and all these types of bands. Um, we ended up touring with Bad Religion overseas, um, in Europe. Um, Warp Tour, we started doing Warp Tour. We were pretty, st uh, pretty much a staple on the Warp Tour in the US, in Europe, in Australia uh, for many years. And that boosted us up huge as well. Um, I think it was Warp Tour that, you know, kind of, it put another like sort of rung on the ladder, so to speak. 
So Life in General is blowing up. Their catalog's blowing up. They're on K-Rock. They've been on MTV 120 Minutes. They're opening for Less Than Jake. They're playing all over the world. They're blowing up in Japan. I actually went to Japan with MXPX, and they were on Jimco Records in Japan, and they were played for a thousand people there, and everyone knew their lyrics there. I mean, they were just blowing up. And we get it started getting a lot of attention from all these major labels after Life in General was, was big. And um, at that point, we're like, all right, let's do, you know, it was, I gotta say, you know, a lot of it was our manager at the time telling us, hey, let's do this, this could be this, this, that. And we're still kids. I mean, we were still kids at the time, maybe 18, just really everything happening way too fast. <laughs> but um, we were just going, you know, that's all you can really do. Then MXPX gets a manager. First, they talked to, I think her name was Elise from the Dance Hall Crashers. And then they talked to a guy named Creighton, who worked for, I believe, MCA Concert Promotions. And I actually introduced, they had toured or they played some shows with Dance Hall Crashers. And then I had introduced them to Creighton. And um, all of a sudden, they have a, a big time lawyer. They have a manager. I have quadruple the size staff that I have to pay payroll taxes to, health insurance. So, you know, we are starting to make money, not just with MXPX, but with some of the other bands as well. So, well, tell me about how that felt. Like, are you excited? Did you? Yeah, I'm you super, ex it? well, I'm super excited, but you know, most companies have a credit line or cash flow, right? That makes sense, but I didn't have any of that. And I was pretty green when it came to all that. So, but I went and hired like eight new people and I hired a, a top designer, um, Susie, who's now the head of graphic design at Mad Magazine and, was also a big time designer at Disney. She came in and started doing all of our graphics. And, you know, she, I had to pay her a nice salary and we had all this overhead. So, was that, was that cool? I mean, how did you feel about getting to have a big staff now? Well, I loved staff? it. I, mean, I loved it. I also, it, it's, I'm learning as I'm going, right? So all of a sudden I'm managing people. The whole thing's a whole nother, another level, right? I have two lawyers. I have to pay thousands of dollars of rent to be in an office building in downtown Seattle. You know, this whole thing's getting serious quick, right? Mike's 18. He's a man now, right? He's running his own business, MXPX Incorporated. <laughs> I'm running Tooth and Nail Incorporated. <laughs> so we are we are a team and we are both have separate businesses and we're, we're making it work, right? So they're blowing up. Tooth and Nail's blowing up. I'm dealing with all kinds of crazy shit in my office, like... <laughs> Like, people getting their feelings hurt or, you know, <laughs> somebody, you know, I mean, all of a sudden we're managing lots of people. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, I don't know, I'm going to put out some records in my bedroom and I'm going to have James Morales be my publicist and Matt Wignall will work for me and I'll build power. And all of a sudden you got 20 people on your team and someone says someone offended them and there's this and that. And meanwhile, you're putting out 30 albums a year and you have a couple artists that are blowing up and yeah, it's a lot of work. In the 90s, it was literally me in my bedroom, right? Not knowing what I'm doing to building a team of people and going to the next level. So, I mean, if I look back at my life, the 90s was probably the most influential to me and the most memorable because it was the, the most fun. Uh, it was at first, for sure. 
Okay, so if it's not obvious by this point, MXPX has completely blown up. They're all over the place. They're all over TV. They're all over radio. They're all over the world. And of course, nothing stays the same forever. And this is the point in our story where MXPX and Tooth and Nail part ways. And here's another TV clip of MXPX that I found in the old VHS tapes. The members of MXPX have been playing together for the last five years. In that time, they've released four independent albums, and the last, Life in General, yielded their biggest hit, Chick Magnet. They have filmed seven videos, toured the country over a half a dozen times, and their indie success caught the eye of A&M Records, which just released the band's major label debut, Slowly Going the Way of the Buffalo. MXPX can be seen this summer as one of the acts on the Warped Tour. Here they are with I'm Okay, You're Okay. Tooth and Nail was, was uh, not really wanted us to look at other labels, but we pretty much did what we wanted at that point. Went up to like three different labels, finally decided on A&M Records. We signed with A&M and uh, they were a boutique label, um, even though they, were, they had major label uh, distribution. So actually they're kind of a lot like what Tooth and Nail is now. They wanted to go to a major label and they had offers from Columbia and A&M and others. And they ended up going to A&M Records, and um, they put out three records there. Well, I think MXPX is super important for us because we were breaking into the general market with bands like Strong Arm and Focused, and they were accepted immediately in the general market, and they were doing something that other bands weren't doing. They had they were they were credible and they were respected, and with that respect, I think Tooth and Nail got a lot of respect as well, and we fed off that. And I also think we were very important for them. MXPX was a turning point for Tooth and & Nail and really helped us get a lot of inroads into the general market and helped us build our brand and our label. And even when they went on the A&M Records, you know, we took the money that we made from that deal and put it all into the Supertones and the Juliana Theory. And at that point, you know, it, in 01, we were able to sell half the company to a major label and take all those resources and sign Amber Lynn and Emery and Thousand Foot Crutch and Jeremy Camp and Under Oath and Norma Jean and Haste Today and, you know. What, you, are you saying that MXPX on. made those signings possible, those resources and funds, played a big part in it? They played a part in it, for sure. They didn't make it completely possible. But, I mean, MXPX left the label, and we continued on, right? And we did well. But I think it, it worked out for both parties, right? We helped them. They helped us. So they definitely were our number one identity in the 90s, no question. People ask a lot of times, does it hurt you or help you being a, known as a Christian punk band or, uh, or known as a band from Tooth & Nail? Um, I think it's both, you know. It, it tremendously helped us. Obviously, when we're starting out, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Tooth and Nail, if it wasn't for a lot of that, the people in that scene, the Christians latching onto us. I think about it sometimes. I can honestly say that if we weren't Christians and we weren't on Tooth and Nail, we probably wouldn't even be here. And it worked out for them. They went on and did three albums on major labels, and they've done tons of albums since. And, you know, Mike's a producer, and, and it worked out for us for sure because we got more than we ever thought. I mean, they were the coolest band in the 90s we signed. They were the most respected. They were the most legitimate. And life is life. I signed MXPX when they were kids. You know, people have said, if you never signed them, maybe they would never have been a band. Who knows? I mean, maybe, I mean, I would have been a label. They would have been a band. But we got together when we were just young kids and made a difference, right? We changed 
kind of the 90s for a special scene of music. And that fingerprint, whatever it is you want to call it, will be there forever. And Aaron Sprinkle's life was changed. Mike's life was changed. My life was changed. Bill Power's life was changed. Yuri's life was changed. Tom's life was changed. And, you know, we had our ups and downs. And for better or for worse... We sold millions of records together, and they've gone on to have an awesome career, and Toothedale's also definitely gone on to do very well. So, I love MXPX. When I meet a special girl She always from somewhere else in the world Don't wanna call her on the phone I wanna talk to her Okay, so I'm in Jacksonville, Florida today, and I ran into one of our labeled members. Tell him your name. Jeremy Allen Gould. Ran into him in a coffee shop. So, Jeremy, thank you for being here. Tell us about you being a Tooth & Nail fan. When were you first exposed to this scene? Uh, Very early on, when uh, Tooth & Nail first started, I remember buying uh, Wish for Eden Pet the Fish in my Christian bookstore, and it blew my mind because I was used to Petra and uh, Res Band, which I love both those bands, but... It definitely was insane, and of course, Focused and Starflyer and all that from there on. So you're first generation, original target market of this whole scene. You yes, the, sir. Yes, just yes. discovered it, and then you've been here ever since, and now you're a labeled member and everything. Yeah, and, and honestly, the Tooth & Nail has always had a special place in my heart in so many different ways, so it's awesome to be involved still and still keep up on the newer bands and the older bands and you know, be in this group and be able to talk about cool old times. Well, I, I thank you so much. And Jeremy said he has a son now that's old enough to 18 years old and starting to like this kind of music too. So that's pretty pretty sweet. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, my I had a, a saw MXPX in high school, and my son loves MXPX now, and he's in high school. So oh my gosh, that's great. Cool. You you want to read the credits for us? Sure, absolutely. My name is Jeremy Allen Gould, and my favorite tooth and nail band is Starflyer Fifty Nine. Matt Carter is our host. Editing, sound design, and music supervision by Melanie Studley. Story by Matt Carter. Reva Hansen is our production manager, and Brandon Ebel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Adam Scaluda and Marshall Frimuth at Tooth & Nail Records. Our title sponsors, otherwise known as our biggest supporters, are Jesse Batesel and Boxer Joy, a post-punk band from Alabama. They support the show at patreon.com labeled. And you should join us in supporting the show. Go to patreon.com labeled. You can have your name or the name of your nonprofit or band or business be a title sponsor. But more importantly, label members gain access to hours of uncut and otherwise unaired tape interviews and behind-the-scenes conversations that don't make it into the episodes, but are truly amazing. Again, that's patreon.com slash labeled to support the show and get access to hours and hours of bonus footage. This week, we will get more than a full hour of my Carrera, a few minutes of which you heard in this episode. Thanks for listening to the Label Podcast, and we will see you soon. Yeah.